From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Depression and anxiety are the most common types of mental illness in the U.S., and a lot of people need help but don't have access to care. Modern technology may offer a solution. The use of online programs and mobile apps, known as e-therapy, may reach those who otherwise wouldn't have access to mental health services. We'll learn about e-therapy from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, January is National Blood Donor Month. Why we need blood now. And January is also Cervical Health Awareness Month. We'll discuss cervical cancer screening and prevention. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to researchers at Northwestern University, only one-third of those in need of mental health help actually get it. And that's due in part to the barriers to care. Are there simply not enough resources to give the traditional face-to-face mental health treatment that we actually know can help? So despite effective treatments, depression and anxiety continue to be huge public health problems in this country. In this modern day and age, there may be a new solution, however. The development of behavioral intervention technologies, such as mobile apps, is expanding mental health resources for patients who need them. While not intended to replace face-to-face treatment, these e-therapies are showing promise. Here to talk about mental health and the use of e-therapy is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sawchuk. It's good to see you. Great. Thank you for having me back again. So, Dr. Sawchuk, the... Statistics would suggest that, in fact, there are more people who are mentally ill than there used to be. Is that correct, or is it just that we are better at diagnosing it, or we're better at asking the question, or, or why is it? Are people, are, is there really more mental illness in this country than there used to be? Yes, all those are actually correct. I think as time is going along, the world is becoming a more stressful place. And every time we've done a new epidemiologic study, the rates of depression, anxiety in particular, seem to be increasing. So roughly about 30% of the population uh, will suffer from at least um, one significant episode of functionally impairing anxiety or depression at some point in their lifetime. But true, we are also doing a better job with assessing that as well, too, and getting to people earlier than we have before. So what are, you've got people who finally are willing to say, yes, maybe I need some help, maybe. Yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's a different question. But what then? Uh, but now the problem is they can't get help. Yeah, they can't get help. So <laughs> exactly. what do you have new that's uh, that, op- that you have to offer them? Well, there's a great uh, statistic that you mentioned earlier on of, of all those people in the population. So uh, over a third of our, uh, around a third of our population struggling uh, with uh, mental illness, um, access to mental health resources um, are, are very difficult and maybe only about 30 to 40 percent get some degree of care. But when we actually look at the type of mental health care that they're receiving, um, oftentimes only 25 percent of those folks are getting evidence-based care uh, within that. So there's... Evidence-based care. Yeah, what's that? Exactly. So whether it be if they're doing uh, medication management for depression, um, usually only about 25 to 30 percent are actually getting the right dose of medication Mm -hmm. and they're taking it the right way in order for it to be helpful or um, 
psychological therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, only about 20% of the folks are actually getting the right dose of behavioral therapy, doing the right skills um, that can be helpful to them. Is it a bigger deal? I would imagine the answer is going to be both, but is it a bigger deal to have medication that helps through this time, or is it talk therapy is more important? Or is it the sandwich of the two? It's the sandwich of the two, but there actually are some uh, interventions that uh, do tend to work a lot better behavioral therapy-wise. So, for example, anxiety disorders, and especially a lot of children mental health conditions, um, respond much better to behavioral therapy. So that must be where these e-therapies come in, because it has to be the behavioral types of things. Exactly, and it and it meets the need of, of the population. Uh, we think of um, e-therapies uh, now as uh, one of these... Um, a, a part of a larger group that we call um, high-impact, low-intensity. So they're low-intensity treatments because you don't need that face-to-face um, contact necessarily. You don't have to drive to a particular location to access those therapies, which can be big barriers to care in the first place. But they can be available to anybody, anytime, anywhere. And I think that this is um, definitely, as technology has advanced, uh, so has our ability to reach these folks um, and really break down those barriers to care. Is the is the overriding problem the fact that there simply are not enough mental health care professionals in this country? That is definitely part of the problem. Uh, and then there's lots of other um, issues that I think you actually look at. The mental health consumer is also changing as well, too. Uh, folks nowadays are a lot more tech savvy. They're a lot more kind of in the moment uh, type of thing. So there actually may be a change in the consumer demographic of they would actually prefer um, more of an e-therapy approach as opposed to a face-to-face in-person approach. So tell us what you've got. Tell us about the e-therapies that are available. All right. So I want to talk about um, really um, if we think about just the the history of, of e-therapies, and there's been some changes in terms of the technology that has really driven um, how has e-therapy advanced over time. So we think of um, back in the day, uh, e-therapy was pretty much education and text-based. It was kind of like doing uh, buying a self-help book putting it online, and just reading it. So as you can imagine, uh, the attention span only lasts for so long. And what we're finding is with the early forms of e-therapy, people will log on once, and then that was about it. But any type of uh, technology, um, and especially therapy, they look at, at usability, like how often are you actually getting onto that site and looking at that information. So as time has developed, uh, or as technology has developed over time, then we're finding that um, the types of programs are um, collecting more in the moment type of information. So getting mood ratings, for example, right in the moment where a person is at. It's more interactive. It's using that data to tailor the types of skills and prompts for people to work on. Um, and uh, it's, it's simply a lot more portable. So we've moved from you know having to sit at a desktop computer, which were the old ways that we used to do e-therapy, to more in-the-moment um, app use um, because over 2 billion of the folks on the planet have iPhones or smartphones to some degree. So that's where e-therapy is really being delivered now. Dr. Sacek, these e-therapies are fairly new on the, on the scene. 
and they're available to most anybody who has access to a computer or a cell phone, smartphone? Very much so. So there are still some um, e-therapies that are available on uh, typical Internet websites. Uh, but as we're seeing the explosion of a number of these e-therapies available on the App Store, and we can talk about some of the differences, some of the advantages and the disadvantages between the two formats. All right, Dr. Craig Sawcheck, psychologist at the Mayo Clinic. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Sawcheck about some specific e-therapies that are available right now. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking with psychologist, talking with psychologist Dr. Craig Sawcheck about e-therapies. Dr. Sawcheck has told us that the incidence of mental illness in this country is as high as 30% over a lifetime. He's also told us that there are uh, a lot of people who are not getting actual face-to-face uh, evidence-based help that uh, that really would help them. And so now we're talking about an alternative called e-therapies. And two different types. There's the Internet type or the app type. Let's start with the Internet types. What what does that mean? Typically, the Internet-based uh, e-therapies are the ones that have been around the longest uh, now, and they do tend to be a little bit more labor-intensive. They do require folks to be sitting in front of the computer for extended periods of time, which is very different from some of the app-based uh, ones that we'll talk about in a moment. Two of my favorite ones, and ones that also have a good amount of evidence in the literature, and that is extremely important that we look at, you know, what is the evidence based uh, for these programs? One is uh, called Sleep Healthy Using the Internet or Shut Eye, and that website is www.myshuteye.com. And that really focuses in on evidence based treatments for insomnia. And we know uh, that insomnia is a very prevalent uh, condition, can directly increase risk for anxiety and depression in the population. And doing a great behavioral treatment for insomnia can be extremely helpful. Except for... I thought that if you've got insomnia, you're supposed to stay off your screens. That's right. You, you do it during the day <laughs> okay. or, or, you know, don't get on shut eye, uh, before an hour, uh, you know, no more than an hour before you go to bed, okay. uh, at night. Um, but this is a, uh, basically it's a six week, uh, type program where it, uh, really tracks, um, uh, sl- certain sleep habits. It gives you ideas for improving the quality of your sleep, but really works at some of these behavioral skills, um, like stimulus control and sleep restriction that are known to be very, very helpful components for managing sleep. Shut-Eye, S-H-U-T-E-Y-E dot com. No, it's uh, M-Y-S-H-U-T-I dot com. So that's sleep oh. healthy using the Internet. My Shut-Eye. MyShutEye.com. Gotcha. All right. So yeah, that's not the in- E-Y-E, it's I. Yes. Okay. It's, it's now, so who the sponsors this? Who, who, who sponsors the program? I mean, how, how do they get funding to do this? So this is based on on just randomized trials that have been developed over time because we've learned what evidence-based principles work face-to-face for the behavioral management of insomnia, and then a group of researchers to try to improve the access to that, develop the Internet website. Now, the the trick is that developing an Internet-based platform needs to be done in an evidence-based way in a randomized trial. Does it do just as well or comparable to a face-to-face intervention? And Shut-Eye has excellent outcome data on that. 
what's the other internet-based program that you recommend? The other one is, is actually out of the United Kingdom called Beating the Blues, um, and that's uh, www.beatingtheblues.co.uk. Um, and this is actually also being uh, piloted uh, at the University of Pittsburgh uh, by Bruce Rollman and uh, colleagues out there. And this really formally goes after um, uh, anxiety and depression and really focuses in on um, exposure-based skills to help with that avoidance behavior, scheduling more meaningful activities. When we're depressed, we tend to withdraw. And in particular, teaching people ways to challenge and manage um, negative styles of thinking. And that one works. That one works. That can be helpful. We found that with some of the um, research, when they've compared um, just uh, the user logging in and using Mm it, um, can lead to okay outcomes, but those outcomes can be enhanced when you have like a nurse care coordinator Mm -hmm. or an additional coach just encouraging people to log in on that and then, you know, maybe setting some goals for some feedback. Is there a cost for shut eye or and beating the blues? Yeah, there is a cost for shut eye. um, And uh, that one, I think, runs about $135. Um, And I think this is something that insurance companies need to take a close look at, that, boy, wouldn't it be worthwhile covering the cost of that program as opposed to paying for medications to be managed for insomnia or even sometimes to see a behavioral therapist face-to-face? Well, there's where the money comes from. Okay, so there's the funding. Funding comes from the patient. Yeah, and beating the blues um, actually is more about um, are you working with a provider who's linked to that program ah. and they can get you in. So there's a little bit more complexity with uh, Beating the Blues. It's not a full um, consumer-based uh, type of platform. But it helps to, if if someone would like to use that, that's a good thing that you could start off with for your provider to get you there. Exactly, exactly. And going to, the, to that website uh, will give you some additional information. And that is an eight-week program. So there's okay. eight uh, modules and that for that. BeatingTheBlues.co.uk. That's exactly All right. right. Now let's talk about apps. What do you have or what do you suggest when it comes to the apps that you use on your smartphone or your device? Yeah, apps are really the way of the future uh, that's going. And uh, the trick of it is that they're, this is a proprietary business. So there's lots of um, companies uh, that are developing uh, apps that um, look like or they're at least uh, sold as um, being evidence-based for the treatment of anxiety, depression, or other mental health problems when essentially they lack any evidence base whatsoever or they may not even have behavioral psychologists involved in developing these apps. Understandably, it's hard for the consumer to be able to tease that out, but the applications that are linked with um, universities um, stands a much better chance of being much more evidence-based. But there are two um, apps uh, that I think are absolutely great. One of them um, to uh, you know reinforce the great work that Mayo has done uh, is called the Mayo Clinic Anxiety Coach uh, okay. app, and this has been developed by Dr. Uh, Stephen Whiteside, who's a child anxiety anxiety expert um, here at Mayo, but also internationally, and his colleague, who is an adult anxiety specialist, Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz. And this, uh, I think, really represents um, how apps should be developed, that uh, this is done in an evidence-based way using evidence-based principles, and especially it's focused in on anxiety, and the number one treatment for anxiety disorders is exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. So the great thing about these apps is they can actually use these apps to develop an exposure-based plan. What are those fears that you're going to face? It gives you ideas and can tailor ideas of how to approach your fears gradually rather than head on and being overwhelmed by them. Is anxiety a bigger problem or depression a bigger problem in this country? Anxiety is a bigger problem. Wow. However, the 
actual costs of impairment tend to be higher with depression, but the rates of anxiety disorders are higher. And how long has this uh, Mayo Clinic Anxiety Coach been around? I've never even heard of that app. Yeah, it's actually been around for a couple of years, okay. but they're um, doing a lot of research on that app, and we're hoping to develop it or implement it into our programs, our regular clinical practice as time goes along. But the great thing about this app is it's it's, it's tailored to the individual. It helps them focus in on goals and progression towards those goals, and they can actually use tips and tricks with that app right in the moment. All right. Is that a free app, or does that, is there a charge for that? I believe there's a charge for that. I think it's about $1.99 or $3.99. So that's the good to, thing about apps. They're usually yeah. pretty reasonable. Yeah, very reasonable there, <laughs> but evidence-based and, and really good stuff there. All right, the Mayo Clinic Anxiety Coach. And what's the other app you recommend? Well, the other app is coming full circle around is when you're talking about uh, some of the um, data coming out of Northwestern University is they have a suite of different uh, types of apps called the IntelliCare app. So, again, this is through the Northwestern uh, University. And they've got um, almost like a salad bar of different apps. So this, um, once again, I think gets to the consumer in terms of what do they feel they need the most help with. So uh, with, um, for example, they have an app, uh, a specific program within that that focuses in on sleep and sleep management. They also focus in on um, strategies to learn how to manage worries in the moment, um, getting connected with meaningful social contacts, breaking out of the cycle of isolation. So I think they have a suite of about 12 or 13 different apps to choose from. So once again, you think about it from the mental health consumer um, who would use technology. They're looking for things that are very specific that they can use just for a few moments at a time. And this is a great option for that as well. So what does the future hold? What's ahead yep, what's of us? What's in the pipeline? Well, more as you're seeing that the sophistication is dramatically increased is, uh, and, and these apps collect a lot of data on folks. So I think what we're going to find is they're going to become progressively more and more interactive. What's going on in the research community now is um, two particular populations um, are being studied with use of mobile apps. Um, one is bipolar disorder, and the other are various substance-related problems. And what I absolutely love about the research that's being done in this area is they're trying to help those folks um, with great coping skills right in the moment in which they need it. Because both with bipolar and substance-related problems, um, their triggers sometimes may come out of the blue. Um, and sometimes they need assistance right in the moment to offset relapse or acting impulsively. So these are excellent apps uh, that uh, I think are are going to have a lot of promise going forward. Wow. Well, there's hope for people who need it. Mental health and the use of e-therapies. Psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk, thanks so much for being with us. All right. Thank you for having me back. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk about the ongoing need for blood donations as we pay tribute to National Blood Donor Month. And later on the show, we'll hear from a Mayo Clinic expert about the importance of screening for cervical cancer. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Aging can do a number on your waistline. All of us, regardless of the sex, males and females, gain weight as we age. But Dr. Ekta Kapoor says women have to cope with weight issues that come with menopause. On average, women in midlife gain about a pound and a half every year. That's about 15 pounds in one decade. 
The hallmark of menopause is decline in estrogen levels, and estrogen plays a pivotal role in fat distribution in the body. Menopause makes you gain weight around the midsection, and it slows your metabolism. But the main reason for midlife weight gain is there are subtle changes in our physical activity level. So how can you beat the midlife bulge? Really, the core of this is lifestyle changes. If you slowly cut calories and move more every day, you can maintain a healthy weight long term. And another news: it is cold and flu season. And ever since a study came out in the 80s that showed zinc supplements kept people from getting sick, lots of people have been taking it. But a new analysis has shown mixed results. Recently, this analysis of several studies showed that zinc lozenges or syrup reduced the length of a cold by one day, especially when taken within 24 hours of the first signs and symptoms of a cold. Studies also showed that taking zinc regularly might reduce the number of colds each year. Now, most colds are caused by a type of virus called rhinovirus. Rhinovirus. Zinc may work by preventing the rhinovirus from multiplying. It may also stop the rhinovirus from lodging in the mucous membranes of the throat and nose. But the recent analysis stopped short of recommending zinc. None of the studies analyzed had enough participants to meet a high standard of proof, and it's not clear what the effective dose and treatment schedule would be. Also, zinc has side effects, and large amounts are toxic and can cause copper deficiency, anemia, and damage to the nervous system. So for For now, the safest course is to talk to your doctor before considering the use of zinc to prevent or reduce the length of colds. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, since 1970, the American Red Cross has recognized January as National Blood Donor Month, and with good reason, because you know nasty weather, a bad cold, or the flu, even the even the winter blues can keep donors, even the most dedicated donors, from making or keeping an appointment to donate a pint of blood. Here to discuss the need for blood donors in January and throughout the year is Dr. Justin Croyder. Dr. Croyder is the medical director for the Mayo Clinic Blood Donor Center here in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Croyder. It's good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Dr. Croyder. So I guess you're trying to get the word out, especially in January. You need blood. Absolutely, we always need blood. The message is is the same, so it's hard to keep it、uh, in the forefront of all of our minds that it's something that we always need people to be thinking about. But really, all 12 months of the year, January is when you have your biggest need. Is that true?、Uh, one of so.、Mm-hmm. So it, usually around the winter time when people are, are traveling、uh, for seeing family, and then also the same thing in the summertime when people are taking summer breaks and summer vacation. It sort of surprises me that you need that much. Yeah, it's a combination of just、uh, still taking care of all the patients that are having surgery or getting、uh, medical treatments, but also taking care of the patients that are having traumatic injuries, both from work but also traveling. What makes you eligible or ineligible to donate blood? Yeah, we want to belly up, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're thinking about both sides of the equation here. We want to make sure that it's safe for donors.、Uh, number one, and、uh, number two, then we want to make sure that the blood that we collect is safe for the patients that we give it to. So we want to make sure that a, a donor is in、uh, good health, feels well and healthy the day that they're coming in to donate. So those troublesome winter colds certainly put some of our, our donors out, unfortunately, for a period of time. Uh, but then we also want to make sure that there's nothing in their blood that could cause harm for other patients, and sometimes that might be a history of certain diseases. But in other cases, it might be、uh, have medications that a donor might be on. I know、um, locally that the Mayo Blood Center、uh, has 
expanded out the amount of time in between when you can donate. And that must make a difference, too. Certainly. That's something that we're struggling with on a national basis is uh, looking out for the health of our donors. There's concern about we're making, we may be making some of our regular donors iron deficient and then causing an anemia or a low blood count in some of these donors. And we certainly don't want to make some people in our in our community sick at the expense of trying to make others healthy. Uh, and so that's something that we're trying to grapple with now is what's the right way to collect blood and really maintain that focus on safety for our donors? Does that have to do with bringing them in less often? Does it have to do with recommending that our donors take iron supplements? This is something that is a, a very hot item for research in the blood donor community, and we really don't have an answer yet. You mentioned a certain diseases could make you ineligible to, to donate blood. What diseases? Well, for uh, history of cancer, one. So it depends on, on the kind of cancer, and it's going to depend on your local blood center. So if you have a history of cancer, you want to give your local blood uh, collector a call and ask them uh, what their policy is. For a lot of places, uh, they'll defer usually for about uh, one year for most kind of cancers. As for other cancers, blood type of cancers like lymphoma and leukemia, some places will defer permanently. All right, what else? What other diseases would disqualify you? Uh, well, so for some of, uh, it depends also on, uh, for example, if somebody has some autoimmune disease where they've got antibodies floating around that can cause problems for patients. That mean bad, like lupus, you mean? Uh, potentially for some people if they have active disease. So for a lot of these things, it's going to depend on how somebody is doing at this point in time. So Hepatitis? So for hepatitis, certainly uh, somebody can be excluded. So for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, these are going to exclude somebody permanently from donating. And uh, last summer, of course, we had the Zika virus was at the forefront of the conversation, and that made a difference, too, for you locally, I would imagine. Absolutely, and that's another that's an example of looking out for the safety of the blood supply on the recipient side of the equation. Uh, and that's something that's evolved from a couple of months ago when right. we spoke. Uh, we were asking people a lot of detailed information about uh, where they've traveled and sexual history, et cetera. And now that's switched over nationally and across the entire U.S. Now, everybody is doing a test for the Zika virus, so we're no longer asking some of those uh, travel questions for Zika. What about, though, the blood that is donated? Is is that blood tested? Is all of the blood tested once it's been donated? Absolutely. So all blood is tested for some of the common infectious diseases that we think about, HIV, hepatitis, uh, but also now the new thing is uh, the Zika virus test. So all blood is tested and all blood is found to be negative for these infectious diseases before we even put a label on the blood unit and send it over to the hospital. You know, somebody asked me recently, they said that uh, they, they'd gotten a tattoo and they thought they couldn't be a blood donor. It's true. Well, that's something that in the past uh, we used to defer folks for 12 months after they've got a, uh, had a tattoo placed or a piercing. And now the uh, regulations, particularly in Minnesota, are we license uh, our uh, tattoo parlors and, and uh, piercing shops. And so it depends on where you are and what their policy is. So that's another example where you know our listeners should probably give a call to the local blood center and ask them what their policy is. What are the different types of blood 
donation. I know if you just are a straight up blood donation, you just in and out, no problem. But there's some where you can park there for a couple of hours. What's the difference? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, the classic way we think about donating blood is to donate whole blood. So everything that comes out of your vein. But there's some ways now that we're learning to harvest, collect just specific pieces of the blood. So red blood cells we can collect specifically. Plasma we can collect specifically. Platelets we can collect specifically. And so what that allows us to do is from one donor collect a significant amount of red cells or platelets or plasma. And so that kind of donation is called an apheresis donation. That's because rather than passively collect blood out of the vein, we have to send it through a machine first that separates these uh, different components. And then you give the other part back? Correct. Yeah, we give everything else back to the donor. Well, why wouldn't you just take the, the the whole blood and then divide it up? Because there are certain things that you need more often than others, for example? It's a really interesting discussion because, you know, for trauma, for example, when people are bleeding out whole blood, we tend to want to replace with whole blood. So our trauma patients here at Mayo Clinic, they're getting red cells, plasma, platelet units when they come in the door uh, and now in our helicopter as well. Uh, But for most patients that are hospitalized, for patients, for example, uh, with liver diseases, they tend to use or need just the plasma component of the blood. Mm -hmm. Some patients with lymphoma or leukemia usually just need the red cells and the platelet unit uh, component of the blood. And so it has to deal with most medical patients just need one or another component of blood. uh, And then some of our patients, like trauma patients, need everything. Why give them more than they need, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because this, you know, there's more volume, there's more immune complications to it. So it's just really looking out for uh, what does that patient really need and keeping that focus on patient safety. We have just a few seconds left. The blood donor program blog in the 21st century. Everybody has a blog, and is that has information for everyone in it? Absolutely, uh, it has information for everyone, and we specifically also want to target and be transparent with what our inventory here is at, at Mayo Clinic. This is about our initiative to really uh, connect people and build this community of blood donors that we all can help each other out because uh, in light of all these uh, natural and cultural uh, tragedies that have happened uh, recently, it's the blood that was donated last week that's on the shelf to help those tragedies today. All right. The Medical Director of the Mayo Clinic Blood Donor Center right here in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Justin Kreider. Thanks much. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll cover another Awareness Month recognized in January, Cervical Cancer Screening Month. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the cervix. The number of women dying of cervical cancer has decreased over 60% since the introduction of the cancer screening test called the pap smear, which was invented by a Greek physician by the name of Papa Nicolaou. I said that because my wife is Greek. I know. You're very wise. Some points. But according to the CDC, there are still 12,000 new cases of cervical cancer and 4,000 deaths due to cervical cancer every year in the United States. Now, most of these are women who were either never screened or they weren't screened often enough or as often as they should, or they had an abnormal test and didn't have adequate follow-up. 
Wow. In an effort to raise awareness about how women can protect themselves from HPV, the human papillomavirus, and cervical cancer, January is Cervical Health Awareness Month. Here to discuss cervical cancer screening is Dr. Kathy McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin is a family medicine physician who focuses her research on improving rates of cervical cancer screening. Welcome to the program, Dr. McLaughlin. Thank you. Uh, nice to have you on the program. So uh, Tracy said, uh, and she talked uh, uh, as if there was a, a definite connection between HPV and cervical cancer. Explain that. Sure. This was a really exciting finding, basically, in the science world to recognize that the cause of cervical cancer, 99 plus percent of the time, is persistent infection with human papillomavirus or HPV. There what, are many, do you, what do you mean persistent infection? We'll use the term HPV if that's okay going mm-hmm. forward rather than human papillomavirus virus. Um, It's a very um, common virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, The CDC estimates that about 70 to 80 percent of sexually active adults will have an infection at some time in their life. Most of them won't recognize it. There won't be any clinical outcome or symptom associated with it. They'll clear and be fine. But in a handful of patients, that high-risk HPV infection persists for years. Mm -hmm. And over a 10 to 25-year period of time, that can result in precancerous changes of the cervical cells and subsequently cancer. All right. So it's it's a virus. So Correct. even if you knew you had it or even if you had symptoms, what would the symptoms be and, and could you treat it? Low-risk HPV is in a separate category that doesn't cause cancer but causes genital warts. But the high-risk HPV really doesn't present with symptoms that patients would see or find. And after years and years of exposure, potentially that would uh, be picked up with some cervical abnormalities on the pap test or on an HPV test. It could be picked up that way as well. But there really wouldn't be symptoms that patients would be watching for. And the majority of the time, the infection clears without intervention, especially in healthy people with normal immune systems. How did you figure out that most cases of cervical cancer were were caused by a persistent HPV infection? Yeah, I actually don't know how that was figured out. But there was a German virologist who was instrumental in making this discovery a number of years ago. And then just through process of studying that virus, figuring out that it actually is responsible for a lot of oral, pharyngeal, or head and neck cancers, penile and anal cancers too. So it's not just women that need to be concerned about HPV. So what are the symptoms when someone has cervical cancer or HPV? Uh, Probably either one, both. So um, if somebody was not getting regular screening and came in and was diagnosed with cervical cancer symptoms, they may know it would be irregular um, menstrual or vaginal bleeding. Um, But again, most of the time, especially if it's a precancerous diagnosis, either low-grade or high-grade cell changes, that would not be symptomatic, and that would just be picked up through the screening test. uh, If you pick this up early... On a, on a pap test, then you can prevent it from spreading, prevent it from getting worse, and basically prevent cervical cancer, correct? Yep. Cervical cancer is preventable through a combination of screening and vaccination. The screening itself, identifying the changes, the prevention piece is following along more closely than if a pap abnormality or HPV positive test is noted, that person would be put into a surveillance program with some more frequent testing, and depending on how that progressed, potentially have a treatment to prevent the cancer. The introduction, Dr. Shives read um, a laundry list of some things, but the adequate follow-up after an abnormal test right. was surprising to me. How is that falling off of the radar? Right. Um, so, 
in the old days, so to speak, the recommendation was annual pap testing, and that has changed significantly in recent years, recognizing that three-year intervals with pap tests or five-year intervals with pap HPV co-tests for women 30 and over are adequate because it's such a slow-progressing process. But when people haven't come in, that's how these situations can happen. So screening only works if it's done on a repeat basis. And so people who have not engaged in regular screening, there is that potential that the infection isn't clearing and causing just, cell change. They're not coming back like they're supposed to. Right. And okay. so if they had an abnormal PAP or HPV test, they're given advice on when to be seen again. And we try to work on not letting that fall through the cracks with um, you know, uh, online reminders in our patient portal system, letter reminders, but it still happens. So I heard you say that you can prevent cervical cancer in two ways. One, catch it early before it actually turns into cancer by a pap smear, but you also said the word vaccination. Yes. That is really exciting. So um, 10 years ago, the human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine became available in our country. It's been used in other countries for longer periods of time. It was initially approved for girls and women ages 9 to 26 as a three-part series over six months. And the original vaccines had two low-risk HPV types and two high-risk types and covered about 70% of cervical cancers. Just a year ago, a new vaccine that has nine HPV types in it, seven high-risk, two low-risk, is available. And just a couple months ago, the CDC and FDA announced that for girls and boys who are 9 to 14, their immune response is so good to the vaccine that they only need two over six months rather than three. 15 to 26-year-olds would still need three, but it has the potential now to lower the cancer rates by 85%. And what about boosters? Do kids have to get boosters to that, or we still don't know? Yeah, we don't know, but thus far, no. It seems awfully young. Why do you give it uh, so early? Or, right. and, yep. and if you do give this vaccine, you can prevent an infection with HPV. And if you can prevent an infection with HPV, you can prevent cervical cancer. Right. That's what's so exciting about this vaccine. It's a cancer prevention vaccine. And that's how I approach it with my um, pediatric, teenage, young adult patients. Because you're right, it's a sensitive topic to be discussing sexuality and HPV transmission with these young kids who really are the ideal candidates to get the vaccine. So a couple thoughts. One is that completing the series before any sexual exposure results in a more effective vaccine. Okay, so if you've already had sexual exposures, you've likely had HPV exposure, and so the vaccine will be less useful. And the other piece is that it has been shown that these younger kids, the 14 and younger, mount a more effective immune response against Mm. the vaccine than people as they get older. So those are the main reasons that we really focus on the 11 to 12-year-old routine while child visit is the time to introduce this. And and That should also help take away the stigma of it, that it's, you know, the sexual activity piece of it, that it's more about when they're immunity is best. Yep. And I think that's that's working. I think there's a lot of falsehood out on the internet about risks with this vaccine, which is frankly equivalent to a menactor meningitis vaccine or a Tdap tetanus vaccine. And I promote it and have both my teenage son and daughter have received the series and it helps me, I think, to be able to share that with parents that I trust the vaccine. Me too. It's a good idea. Yep, me too. Um, Cervical Health Awareness Month. What else do you want people to know as we make our way through Cervical Health Awareness Month? This may seem unconnected, but I would encourage people to not start smoking or stop smoking. So we know that women who smoke have a higher likelihood of not clearing their HPV and that puts them at increased Mm -hmm. risk. I would encourage everybody to start screening regardless of sexual history at 21 
every three-year screening during the 20s, every three to five years, 30 to 65. And it can be hard to remember something that far apart. Or your Google calendar. You can set it up for years in advance. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That sums it up. Dr. Kathy McLaughlin, thanks so much for telling us about cervical cancer screening and everything that's available to prevent it. Thank you. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.